We're going to keep going in our series on my turn to serve like Jesus. And if you were here last week, you know, we talked about a man named Naaman. And I told you that his name was pronounced Naaman like a goat, but we aren't going to pronounce it Naaman like a goat because that's hard to do. But his name is Naaman and Naaman had leprosy and Naaman was cured of leprosy. But we're going to continue that story because most people, when they read this story, they stop at the end of where they think, well, the end of the story is, and it doesn't actually in there at all. Now, today we're going to be talking about my turn to serve like Jesus, and we're going to be talking about the motive for our service. But let's look at Ephesians 2, which is the passage that we left off with last week as we prime the pump for what we're going to be talking about this week. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this should remind you of some of the things we discussed that you and I, that we are all um, prepared, that God prepared us. He created us on purpose and for a purpose. The purpose is to do good works that he alone has ordained in advance. And all we're supposed to do is to find that purpose and to do it. Now, we also talked about the fact that each of us is a role player, that none of us knows the entire scheme or narrative, that none of us sees the whole chessboard, that we just do what we can when we can, and we allow God to do all the heavy lifting, to work all of the things together. And I was thinking about this this morning as I was uh, singing next to Pastor Dan. And many of you don't know this, but Pastor Dan can sing pretty well. Now, I don't want him to be part of the worship team. He's not that good, don't get me wrong, but he sings pretty well. And I was thinking about this because a year and a half ago when I had uh, my thyroid surgery, when they took my thyroid out, the doctor came out to, to Joy when she was waiting for me to wake up and said, you know, Rick probably has uh, vocal cord damage. We don't know if he's going to talk again. Um, and, uh, you know, so we were a little bit concerned. Joy was a little bit concerned about it at the beginning. Turns out the only thing that, that happened to me with my voice is that my high notes are gone when I sing. So uh, for those of you who have ever heard me sing or knew how I sang before, you think that might be a blessing in disguise for my high notes to be gone. But I used to have high notes and I could belt them out and I would belt them out situationally when I was around people who I didn't really you know, I wasn't worried about being judged by. And so I would sing, and I would sing my low notes, and I would sing my high notes. Now I can't sing the high notes. I get to a certain register, and I just have to fake it. I got to go Milli Vanilli. I have to lip sync it. Pastor Dan, however, can sing the high notes. I think it's because he's tall. And, uh, and so when we sing together uh, there at the front, I'll sing the low notes, and I'm ready. And then when it comes to the spot where I can't sing anymore, hit it, Dan. He doesn't know I do this. And I listen to him and he goes for the high notes. And then when it comes back down to my range, I come right back in and I sing. And together, it's not a great noise, but it's joyful and um, worship, right? My point is this, I can't sing all the notes. It doesn't matter. I can sing my low notes and I can sing my low notes as well as I can possibly sing them. Are they better than your lows? Probably not, maybe better than some. But my low notes combined with your high notes combined with everyone else's melody can make a beautiful chorus that pleases the Lord. Each of us do what we can when we can and we let God worry about the heavy lifting. We let God worry about the big picture. Do what you can. That's what we're gonna be talking about today. But doing what you can with a pure motive. We live in a world that is transactional. And the transactional nature of the world we live in is scary. Now, Naaman, the story of Naaman, just as a review, you've slept since we talked about Naaman. Maybe those of you, maybe some of you weren't here last week. It was Mother's Day. Some were traveling, but the story of Naaman kind of goes like this. Naaman 
was, uh, uh, he was a, a general, he was a field marshal in a Syrian army who had just destroyed in, uh, Israel, not England, Israel, the northern and southern kingdom united to fight against the Syrian army and they didn't fight well and Naaman ended up killing many, many people, including one of the, well, the king of, of Israel and came back a victor, but came back with leprosy, came back and found a spot on his skin. So he had gone from from having the world literally at his feet, all the money that he could want, all the power that he could need, all of the accolades from people. He either got them with his charisma, uh, his charisma and personality or he got them because people were scared of him and, and, and sort of acquiesced to him. And he went to Israel and fought and came back having won the victory but with a diagnosis that could have cost him his life. So we see, if you remember, a servant girl who had been taken captive from Israel, who spoke into Naaman's life and said, you should go see Elisha, the prophet. Now, for those of you who've studied the Old Testament, it gets really confusing about Elijah and Elisha. They're two different people. Elijah was a prophet, and Elisha was a prophet, and they came, well, one right after the other. Elijah was first, and Elisha was his intern, his assistant for a period of time. And then Elijah left the scene and Elisha became the prophet of God. A prophet of God is somebody who God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God sat upon for a period of time in the Old Testament to speak for God and to do some of the things that God wanted to communicate or do with God's people. And Elisha was the prophet of this time. And so the Jewish girl said, go see Elisha. She will, uh, Elisha will help you with your, your leprosy. And so Naaman reluctantly went. And, and if you remember, Naaman told him to go and dunk a bunch of times, seven times, or Elisha did, told Naaman in the Jordan River. And Naaman didn't want to do it and finally decided to do it and, and ended up getting, getting healed from his leprosy. God used the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, the king of Israel, an intern for Elisha, who's going to be, by the way, the, the main character or theme in this message today, and Naaman's own servants. Now, Naaman's error, his problem was that he thought he could buy God's blessing. We'll see it again today. We talked about it a lot last week. The second thing is he thought he was going to be healed by another person who had a sinful human kind of uh, economy. And in fact, Elisha did not have that at all. And then he had his own expectations about the process of what God was going to do. And God always surprises us in the way he chooses to do things. So that's just a reminder. If you weren't here or if you were here and like me, sometimes you forget what you hear and it doesn't stick like we hope. But we're going to be talking today about the transactional nature of the way we live, the transactional nature of our sin nature, and how when we serve like Jesus, we have to avoid the transactional mentality at all cost. You may ask what transactional means, and I would suggest to you that being transactional means that everything you do has an angle, that there's a string attached. Transactional. Transactional is relating to the conducting of business, especially buying or selling, and it's what makes the world go round. You can't go anywhere or do anything without transaction. I'm going to lunch today, and I suspect when I go to a restaurant, I'll have to pay somebody for the food that I eat. There's a transaction the world we live in. Life can be very transactional. I know that if I want to be healthy, I have to eat right. If I eat right, chances are I'll get healthier. We want to exercise to feel a little bit better. We do things to receive things, but relationships can't be transactional. Transactional relationships are built on the expectation for reciprocation. You tracking with me? I'm going to do something to get something from you. 
I want a return on my investment. And this is so hard for you and for me. Because everybody we meet, we either instantly like or we instantly, well, maybe we don't like them. And oftentimes the reason we like somebody is because we think we can get something from them. And the what we get is different based on the situation. But there's strings attached or angles to almost everything we do. Jesus had no angles and did not attach strings. Our ministry at Capital City Church has to be no strings attached, and you might ask what that means. And, and I would say that when you have no strings attached in a ministry, it means that what we do, we do because it's the right thing to do, and we let God worry about the big picture. Uh, some people have asked me, for example, and by the way, we serve hundreds and hundreds of teachers every week. We serve hundreds of law enforcement and first responders and soldiers, and the church serves because it, we're supposed to serve. We nudge people toward Jesus, and sometimes people ask me, well, Rick, how many teachers are coming to church because of what we do? How many police officers are coming to Cap City because of what we do? And what I suggest to them, what I tell people when they ask me that is I say, that's the wrong question to ask. I love it that we have many teachers who are coming here who have experienced Capital City Church by the kinds of things that we've done, but we've loved them with no strings attached. They're not a target or a conquest or a victory. If they find a church home here, tremendous but we do it because it's the right thing to do and God is the one who provides the results. But it's hard to think that way because we as an organization, we have metrics and we have ways to gauge whether or not we're on the right track and we have to constantly know if what we're doing is effective or if we should change strategies, but we can't be always working angles. We do the same thing with people. And I think, I believe that serving like Jesus is the transformation that goes on within us of moving from a transactional mindset into genuinely being able to view the world around us. People I meet, organizations we serve, not as what can you do for me, but what can I do for you? How can I help you? Sound familiar? But it's so hard. Who's going to look out for us if all I'm doing is trying to help other people? And the great thing about that is that's the question God wants us to ask because he stands there with his hand up and he says, if you want me looking out for you, this is the only way you're going to experience it. As long as you're looking out for you, you got what you got. You want me to look out for you? Get rid of the transactional mentality. Serve, love, with no strings attached. Now, the time and events surrounding a person's decision to follow Christ is crucial, which is why this transactional mentality in churches is so bad. Uh, we have to make sure that the information that they receive during this brief period, we have to understand that it can either confirm grace or it can steal it. Who wants to be considered a target group or a conquest or a notch in a belt? And sometimes churches even talk like that, right? Well, we are the world and they are the secular world and we're going to go and win some of them for Christ and they're going to come and be part. And we start thinking about this in a way that I think Jesus steps back and scratches his head and he's like, look, if they're your friends and you love them, nudge them toward me because I want to look out for them just like I want to look out for you and I'm going to build an amazing church if you can do it without always expecting something. Elijah realized that character was important. 
And his spiritual authority belonged to God. Gehazi was borrowing Eliza's reputation and spiritual authority, and he was using it transactionally. So let me tell you the rest of the story. Part B, the last chapter. After Naaman had traveled some distance. Now, to remind you, Naaman had just left town. He'd gone back to Elisha the second time. The first time, offering $1.1 million in silver and gold, some brand new Air Jordan, some Armani suits, and saying, take this, I want to buy God's blessing. Now, some of you, and we talked about that um, a little bit last week, but when I hang out with some of you guys during the week, when we meet and we have coffee, sometimes we talk, I can't really do it without sort of running some of this stuff by you, and some of you guys probably are some of the ones who I ran some of this stuff by, and I'm kind of talking about the transactional idea or mentality of the world we live in, and asking you what you think and how you feel. And, and you know, one of the things that, that I got as far as feedback from you is that when Naaman went to Elisha and offered the gifts to him the first time, well, it was a bribe. He was trying to buy God's favor and buy God's blessing. But then he came back a second time after he said, God is the God, the one true God, the only God I'm going to serve. May I give you this as a gift of thanks? And Elisha said, no, as surely as the Lord lives, you can't give me a gift. You can't give me a gift of thanks. And I've had a couple of friends say, well, that seems a little counterintuitive. It seems a little wrong because we're supposed to contribute to the kingdom and and give generously to the church, and was Elijah telling him not to do that? And I loved talking through that, and I wanna talk it through with you right now real quickly because Elisha was trying to reinforce to a man who was used to getting his way with his money and power that you can't do it in church. But the Jews had a great concept of community and responsibility that Jesus intended to be replicated in the New Testament church, but sometimes isn't. Last night when I was thinking this through and praying for you guys, I was sitting there on my back porch and um, I chose to move to Ankeny. There are lots of good places to live. Ankeny's one of them. And I was thinking about my taxes, my property taxes. And if any of you live in Ankeny, of course I know there are all kinds of places that are expensive to live, but I'm thinking about Ankeny and I was going through my, my mortgage statement in my mind. And I'm thinking, I live in Ankeny and I'm paying enough money in property taxes to be driving a really, really nice vehicle, and instead I'm giving it, well, I'm giving it to the city. And here's my, my train of thought. My kids are grown. I got a whole bunch of rich neighbors who don't need the money, and I'm paying for their kids to go to school. I'm like, I'm not gonna pay my taxes anymore. I started, like, this was my train of thought, right? I, I just drive on the roads. Well, that costs money, right? Well, I just like to go to the road. And, and I started thinking about the infrastructure and started thinking about it. Here's the end of my thought process. I've decided to be part of a community. And by being part of a community, I contribute to the community because it's what you do. And um, what's the big deal? If I pay for great education for somebody else's kids because it makes the world a better place. And see, the Jews understood this concept. They became part of a biblical community. And whether they had kids or not, they contributed to the community because there were other kids who were growing in their faith. And they knew that they were going to affect and impact the kingdom for good. And when we become part of a Christian community, we don't even think about not contributing and, and being part of what's going on because after all, it would be unthinkable, just like living in a, in a city. We want to be part of it. It's a blessing to be able to do it. The Jews knew that. 
Jesus reinforced it. The reason that Naaman was turned away was because he was used to buying what he wanted. And Elisha said, you can't do it. That's not the way God works. So Naaman took off. He had traveled some distance, we don't know how far, and Gehazi, the servant, the apprentice, the intern for Elisha, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, now here's the problem, we're going to stop right here. He said to himself, now let's talk about this for just a second. I give the worst advice I could possibly give when I listen to me, myself, and I. If I'm the only voice I'm listening to, I can almost guarantee you I'm going to come to the wrong conclusions. I'm going to make the wrong decisions. And and I oftentimes will do this, and I find myself doing this when I know really what I need to do, but I don't really want to know what it is that that I need to do. And so I consult. I consult my brain trust, right? Me, myself, and I. Self, what would you do? Rick, what do you think? You know, I go back to my own experience and call my own shots, and that's what, what Ghazi was doing. He said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman. Now, the too easy in Hebrew is a little different than the too easy in in English. What too easy means in Hebrew is it means that Naaman, he was uh, robbed of the opportunity to give, that he was robbed of the opportunity to say thank you, that, that Gehazi was rationalizing and justifying his thoughts as he was sort of deciding to have an impure motive and to get something for himself. You'll see this in just a minute. And he was saying, after all, I mean, Naaman probably should have been able to give a token of his appreciation. And my master, Elisha, was too easy on him, not accepting what he brought. And then he says, as surely as the Lord lives. Now, here's another really subtle nuance that's really not so nuanced in our lives. You and me as people, us as a church. Oftentimes, we decide what we want. And we, because we're Christians, we just assume God agrees with us. And this is what's happening here with this, with this uh, apprentice, with this intern. Gehazi is saying, I think I want something. I think I deserve something. I think I need something. And oh, of course, I'm a follower of God. And of course, God agrees with me. And so he turns his own desires into God's will for his life. And how many times have you been guilty of that? Have I been guilty of that? Have we been guilty of that? This is what I want. So of course it's what God wants. And we put him in a box, create him in our own image. And when we find out that God is thinking the exact same way we are, chances are we're not really understanding and thinking about God. That's what's happening beginning to slide down the slippery slope. My master was too easy on him. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. There is the plot twist. The word from should be in all caps in my opinion because he no longer wanted something for Naaman, a new life in Christ, serving the one true God. He decided he wanted something from him and he was going to go and get his end of the transaction. It was the intern's job to back up Elisha. He was never offered anything from Naaman. He knew what he was doing was wrong. The Bible even says, well, you'll see this in a second, that what he did, he did in a hurry. 
It wasn't good for Elisha who served God. It wasn't good for Gehazi, and it certainly wasn't good for Naaman. The time right before and right after a person meets Jesus is so critical. And any time that we do anything to steal the grace and cheapen it by making it a transaction drives them further away from understanding the grace that was offered us, only requiring our faith and receiving the free gift. So what do we see in verse 21? So Gehazi hurried. Here's the next thing that stuck out in my mind. I've done some things in my life I wish I hadn't done, and usually I do them fast because I don't want anybody else to tell me not to do them. And sometimes if I'm going to do something that I shouldn't do, and I know somebody in my life who's probably done the same kinds of things or isn't going to be thinking the same way I should be thinking, perhaps I would maybe just ask their advice or opinion knowing in advance I'm going to hear what I want to hear. And this man had isolated himself. He was on an island. I'm consulting me, myself, and I, and I'm going to do it as fast as I possibly can. And I find myself sometimes in decisions that affect character, my personal relationship with the Lord, fighting my own internal struggle, knowing that I should pause Wouldn't it be great if we had a pause button for our lives? Pump the brakes, Rick. How many people have you seen close to you who look like they're driving 90 miles an hour toward a train wreck and they just keep pushing the accelerator? And you're screaming, pump the brakes. Don't you see where you're heading? But yet, not only are they pressing the accelerator, they're plugging their ears, consulting themselves, heading toward destruction, filled with pride, only seeing the transaction and beginning to become so entitled, it's disgusting. Now, easy for us to point our fingers and go, oh, what a jerk he is, but I see way too much of myself in him to be condemning. Can't tell you how many times that I've had to pick up the phone or shoot a text message to somebody I trust, Pastor Dan, my wife, my dad, and say, hey, and I already know ahead of time what they're gonna say to me. I'm thinking about, and I tell them, and they tell me what I know I need to hear but I don't wanna hear, and I'm like, oh, great. I don't like you very much because I didn't wanna hear that, but I love you for telling me almost like you just veer at the last second and avoid disaster. You want so badly for him to veer? Doesn't happen. He doesn't veer. He presses the accelerator. He plugs his ears. He hurried with no prayer or no thought of consequence. He hurried after Naaman. So he catches up. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. It was a big deal, right? Naaman was a man who was condemned. Now he was free. He was a person who was destined to to live life with leprosy until he died an early and painful death. And not only was he healed of his leprosy, he was freed spiritually, which is the best news where he followed the one true God. This was a man who was new. He had a fresh start. He had a spring in his step. He was marching to a beat of a different drum, a little gentle wind at his back, the sun on his face. He was grateful. He was excited. He had been saved by God grace through faith. And here comes Gehazi. 
And Naaman turns around expecting the best. Doesn't expect to be part of a transaction. Doesn't think he's going to be deceived or duped. And Gehazi, after being asked the question, is everything all right? He lied to him. He said, everything is all right. My master sent me to say. Now, did his master send him to say anything? No. His master didn't send him to say anything. Gehazi was lying. He was twisting the facts. He was changing his narrative. After all, the end justifies the means. He said, two young men from the company of prophets. It's like seminary or Bible college, right? Two young men from Bible college just showed up at old Elisha's house, and they're broke. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Now, that might not sound like a lot to you, but it's kind of a lot. It took two people to carry it. It was a lot. And, of course, Naaman, he's got goodwill. He's expecting the best. Sure, let's do it. There we go. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them. And then he tied up these two talents in silver bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and then carried them ahead of Gehazi because they were heavy. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things that didn't belong to him. Now, what hill? There was a hill. We don't know exactly what hill because we're not 100% sure of the route that Naaman was taking, but we know the hill was the hill that was in between Elisha's house and the village where they lived and where Naaman had traveled to. It was the hill that was blocking the deception that Gehazi was perpetrating. It was the hill that Gehazi was hiding behind. It was the hill that he thought protected him from his sin. And when he got to the top of the hill, he told these two, these two servants, he was like, look, I got it from here. The servants left expecting him to take the money to Elisha for these imaginary seminary students. But when Gehazi came to the hill, he took these things that didn't belong to him. These things from the servants. And he hid them away in his house. You see, he was guilty at this point of the same exact thing that Naaman was guilty of. Only Naaman was guilty of it before he met the Lord. Gehazi was putting a price on ministry. He was putting a price on service. I was thinking about this again as I was studying and praying for you guys and I was remembering a church when we started this church in the San Francisco area in Northern California. There were only about a dozen of us at this point. When we started a church, it was my wife, myself, my two boys. That was our congregation. When I preached, I'd like to say they listened. I'm not sure they did. We literally met people one at a time. And the church budget was whatever we could muster out of our own pockets. And there was a guy who came and kind of got his faith sort of rekindled. And we were just a dozen people or so at this point. And I remember I had a borrowed office and an old table that was like a kitchen table and I was sitting there and he sat down across from me and he said, I want to write a check. I was like, well, that's my love language right there because we've got to have a church budget and it's fantastic, you know, it's what we do. We become part of a community, we buy into the vision, it's our privilege to support. He wrote a check for $3,500, which was a ton of money for us back then. Slid it across the table. I said, man, thank you. 
take it. I was going to deposit it. We had all kinds of ministry we were going to do. And then he says to me, he said, all right, now that we got that out of the way, let's you and I make some decisions. I said, man, I can't take your money. It's not the way God works. We don't put a price on decision making. We don't put a price on ministry. We don't operate transactionally. We make the decisions. Slid the check back. Motive wasn't pure. Gehazi, the servant of the man who spoke for God, had put a price on what God was doing. A string that was attached. An expectation. Well, he took these things that didn't belong to him. Sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been? Now, the cool thing about this and the scary thing is God always knows what we've been up to and where we've been. And in this case, this was the man who was speaking for God. God had allowed Elisha to know and to to understand where Gehazi had been. So Gehazi was caught before he even knew he was caught. He was guilty, and he was going to be sentenced, you'll see in just a second. And at this point, he still had a chance. He still had a chance to confess, still had a chance to make it right, still had a chance to swerve before he crashed into that train, continuing to press the accelerator, continuing to, to plug his ears. And he says, your servant didn't go anywhere. He lied again. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks or herds or male and female slaves? And he says, Naaman's leprosy, the kind, the one he was healed from, Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. See the reversal you're a believer and you chose to act like the world. You chose to look out for yourself. You chose to be transactional. So you get what you get. If you want God to look out for you and to build your kingdom, we avoid transaction. We serve like Jesus. Everything's different, not some things, friends. Everything's different. What a tragedy. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now, you say, that's terrible. Well, actually, it wasn't that terrible. It was terrible, but it wasn't so terrible because, and somebody's going to check me on this, and, and, uh, that's part of the fun of public speaking, but it's either Leviticus 13.12 or Leviticus 12.13 that actually gives a provision on leprosy, and it says if your skin is entirely white, like all of it, and not like white, you know, just like light, like normal shade skin for a person who has light skin, but I'm talking about like white, 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 like, like covered with leprosy, entirely white. Leviticus said you could still stay in society and still do your job. Now, I don't know how this actually became law. Somebody between services asked me, and I'm like, I don't know. They, they didn't know all the different types of leprosy back then. They just saw spots, and they didn't see spots. My guess is, is that the priests were watching the community of lepers, and the people who turned entirely white didn't die and didn't seem to infect anybody else, and they're like, all right, you must have the good leprosy. 
right? It's like some people get bad COVID, some don't get so bad, and I, I don't know. But they said, you know, if you, if you turn all the way white, you can still be part of society, you can still serve. And then the Bible says that later on, that Gehazi was able to stand before another king on behalf of Elisha, white as snow, living with the consequences of his sin, remembering because there were some physical reminders of the regret that we have that can be a powerful motivator never to do it again, but still useful to the Lord because God's a God of second chances. He's a God who picks us up and dusts us off. And man, I'm so thankful for that as a person who's been picked up and dusted off more than once. Greed can take on different forms. Money. Money is morally neutral, by the way. Can be good or bad. The desire for more cash, even at the cost of personal relationships, integrity, always sin, always bad. Greed. The desire for possessions. The desire for stuff when it overtakes our ability to responsibly possess them. You say, well, aren't those the same thing, possessions and money? And I would say, nope. Because I know lots of people who don't have any money, but they have a lot of stuff. It's called credit cards and debt, right? You can have all kinds of stuff and not have any money at all, barely keeping your eyes above water. But the desire for possessions overtakes our ability to responsibly possess them. And so we can become consumed with it. Fame is another one that's a part of greed that's just so subtle, but yet the desire to be popular, to pursue an unhealthy attention or influence always have to be the center with everybody else supporting you, not being willing to sing the low notes even though you can't sing the high notes, not sitting around begrudging the fact you can't still sing the high notes, but allowing the chorus of believers to sing and everybody serve the Lord together. The pursuit of pleasure, that's part of it, existing for the satisfaction of our personal desires, and then success, and this is a slippery one because we measure everything, and we have to. We know, as I've said before, that life can be very transactional. Our health is transactional, right? What we put into it, we get out of it. Disciplines are all about transaction, investing for the future, for retirement, all about transaction. Relationships can't be transactional. Church ministry can't be transactional. And the way we define success is important, and that's why we have to guard our imagination. There's some thoughts we just can't, can't let ourselves think. Can't. Don't think that thought. Think a different thought. Stop it, right? Think a different thought. I tell myself that from time to time. I hope you do too. If you let yourself think whatever thoughts you want to think, you become obsessed. And you begin to rationalize, which we have to guard against. Uh, Whatever it takes for me to succeed, I got to get mine. I got to take care of myself. I got to be transactional. If I don't, who's going to? Remember, that's the person who God says you get what you get if you're taking care of yourself. Good luck. We have to guard our motives. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all else who can trust it. It will take us for a long walk in the woods and leave us for dead, period. So, am I good at it? Uh Uh-uh. Do I want to get better at it? Yep. And I hope you do too. Let's together ruthlessly eliminate the transactional mentality of relationships from our life and our church so that we can truly serve like Jesus. Father, thank you for my friends.